It's the first year in over two decades that the Defence Force hasn't had large numbers of troops committed to overseas missions. At the same time, the government budget last month boosted defence spending by half a billion dollars over the next four years, following several years of cuts and restructuring. But the future for defence is still hazy, and as this Radio New Zealand Insight has been finding out, questions are being asked about what sort of force New Zealand might need in the future. So at the moment we're sitting on the training wharf um, in Devonport Naval Base. Um, to our left, behind Resolution, we've got the dry dock. And then behind us, behind the fenders, we've got some of our ships who are actually sitting alongside, ready to go to sea. As a Navy supply officer, Lieutenant Commander Kelly Begg is used to spending time at sea. A few years ago, though, she became one of a handful of Navy crew to wind up in landlocked Afghanistan. I sort of had this real moment when we were flying out of our staging area, so sitting in the Hercules fully dressed up in um, desert DPMs, body armour, um, magazine full of live bullets in my pocket. And I went, holy hell, what have I done to myself? Like, what have I volunteered for? Kelly Beggs says the 3,500 troops who went to Afghanistan were aware that not everyone thought they should be there. But she says the mission was an example of why New Zealand's Defence Force should continue to play its part alongside much bigger counterparts. Internationally, New Zealand's got a really good reputation and we... We also have a, a reputation and an ability to be non-confrontational. So if you look at Afghanistan as a, as a primary example, there were a lot of different things happening in that country. Um, you know, if you talk to the American perception, if they had a full-out war over there. New Zealand, we were in Afghanistan, but we had quite a specific role up in Bamiyan looking at the peace, support and security of that province. We weren't involved in combat. We weren't involved in this um, counterinsurgency aspect. We had quite a specific role about stability and helping that, that particular province regenerate and grow. I'm Kate Newton and this insight explores what the future holds for New Zealand's Defence Force, whether those challenges are best met by a traditional military or if it's time to consider what the alternatives might be. It wasn't supposed to be a combat operation and yet 10 soldiers died in the time New Zealand was in Afghanistan. Gunners, I just need you to scan that ground to your front. Kahali, you have direct east, so Major, you've got east to the northeast. This recording from a camera mounted on a New Zealand soldier's helmet dates from August the 4th, 2012, one of the deadliest days in more than 11 years of deployments to Bamiyan province. Travelling through a valley, the New Zealand Provincial Reconstruction Team was ambushed and in the firefight that followed, Praly Dura and Rory Malone were killed. Six others were injured. <laughs> Sitting in a Defence Force office in central Auckland, Dave Gorn is a long way from Bamiyan, but the recent experiences of New Zealand's soldiers in war zones is never far from his mind. The Chief of the Army, Major General Gorn, says the Defence Force's time in Afghanistan demonstrated the changing nature of conflict. The period of conventional war has condensed, so you've gone to, you know, down to a conventional period of warfare of, um, you know, you're talking a couple of weeks now, as opposed to what it was in the past of months, years, if you look back to the Second World War, down to months, down to 100 days for Iraq, and so on. And along with that, the detection, what we call the detection threshold, which is our ability to see uh, the belligerent or understand what he's doing and where he's going and what his intentions are, has increased. He has had to find different ways to actually 
overcome that. And the way he does that is actually by hiding in and amongst the, the people. And that is a very difficult and different proposition um, to what we see on television, which is sort of manoeuvre forces mm. out in the open, um, doing the sort of thing that you read about in, in books. That's a thing of the past. Uh, and the future is, is going to get you know, more brutal in terms of, uh, of that. And we play by different rules. It's not only the nature of conflict that's changing, but also where it may occur. In an effort to make some predictions, Major General Gorn's been turning his thoughts to demographics. It seems a strange thing for an army chief to ponder, but he insists that population changes are part of the key to anticipating and preventing future conflict. He says two of the most important figures are infant mortality rates and total fertility rates, or TFRs, which are the number of children each woman has to have to replace the population. If they are going up in terms of youth bulges and increased infant mortality uh, suggests that there is a greater likelihood for conflict. For example, some of the Melanesian states, they have TFRs above five, they have resource scarcity, uh, and they don't necessarily have an outlet in terms of an employable job uh, or employability. There is environmental degradation. Uh, there are factors like increasing uh, the increasing cost of oil, which all of that um, creates this, this friction. And they don't have an outlet. So the United Nations call this, uh, within our region, poverty of hope. East Timor, Bougainville and the Solomon Islands have all suffered from ethnic tensions bubbling over into conflict in the last quarter century. And each time, New Zealand has sent peacekeeping forces on missions spanning many years. Lieutenant General Tim Keating has been Chief of the Defence Force for less than six months, but it's already clear to him that the military will spend most of its time in coming years keeping an eye on its own backyard. I was up in Papua New Guinea recently talking about the challenges there and, and they're really concerned with some of the rising sea levels and, and one of the islands up there they, they claim or they state uh, you're seeing your first climate refugees of, of up near Bougainville there and part of that group it became untenable because the rising sea levels so the group from that island had to move to another island. One of the challenges you get there is then a sort of a, um, a cross mix of those cultures as, as we've got a, a human population now that needs to be um, transposed onto another, another group and, and, and lots of tensions uh, result from that. The idea isn't to wait for conflict to erupt but to prevent it in the first place. One of the things that we, we constantly do, and it's perhaps not planning for, but we, we actually deliver today, is helping uh, those uh, smaller, more fragile, more developing states um, to be self-actualising, to, to, to be able to govern themselves and, and, and um, cope with um, within the, their resource bases as very small nations. We'll work with people like the His Majesty's Armed Forces in Tonga um, to uh, develop their capabilities and we look at something like their resource protection so their fisheries patrols, they have two patrol craft there so we work along with our own people, uh, MPI, foreign affairs and, and partners like Australia to help them to guard their own resources and police their own resources. Police in New Zealand's maritime resources is also taking up an increasing amount of Navy and Air Force time. 
In the year to July 2013, the Navy's six patrol vessels between them spent 452 days at sea, scouring the four million square kilometres within New Zealand's exclusive economic zone. Additional air support meant Air Force Orions and Sea Sprite helicopters clocked up nearly 3,000 hours in the air. Much of the patrol work is on behalf of other government agencies, including Customs and the Ministry of Primary Industries. Tim Keating says protecting New Zealand's marine environment is an increasingly important aspect of the Defence Force's work. Just fisheries, you know, it's a huge source of revenue for New Zealand and a huge wealth sits in our oceans. And um, there are people who are willing to exploit that if we're not out there uh, monitoring the, the fish catch, monitoring their behaviours in that zone. And, uh, you know, as the, as the world population grows, as the drive for sort of protein diets uh, continues, um, those, those resources, if they're not policed effectively, both in our own region and the Pacific, are vulnerable for exploitation. That will cost New Zealand uh, millions and millions of dollars. I'm Lieutenant Anthony Norris, Commanding Officer, HMNZS Hawea. Uh, we're currently berthed alongside Opal Wharf in the Bay of Islands. Uh, awaiting customs officers' arrival. Two will be embarking this morning and we'll be proceeding out for an overt customs patrol. Then what we're looking for is any ocean-going yachts uh, departing the country and proceeding out, making sure that they've got the appropriate paperwork, they've cleared customs on the way out. Are we well over before it's done? Okay. It's warm with 10, please. I said, 7 5. Altering 040. There is an increased um, pressure on the maritime sector. You just look at a lot of the asylum seekers coming in from Indonesia down to Australia. Uh, a lot of them are being intercepted there, but there are more and more coming through that are actually saying we're trying to get down towards New Zealand rather than uh, Australia, so they don't get here, they often get intercepted and it's a long way to come, especially across um, what can be a very rough waterway in the Tasman, but that likelihood is increasing and our constant presence uh, is often a deterrent, um, and that's the same with the Ministry of Primary Industries and the Fisheries, the more we can be out here and being seen to be patrolling the waters, that is half the battle. But it's a battle the Navy has recently struggled to play its part in. While the patrol fleet spent hundreds of days at sea, crew shortages meant only four of the six ships could be used at once. Those shortages stemmed from Defence Force restructuring in 2011, which resulted in a high turnover across the services. Resignations were especially high among Navy personnel, who have skills that are sought after in other industries, such as mining and engineering. The crewing problems are something that worries the Regional Security Fellow at Victoria University's Centre for Strategic Studies, Paul Sinclair. A former senior staffer at the Ministry of Defence, he says it's a problem that needs swift treatment. I see significant issues ahead uh, for the South Pacific but also the Southern Ocean in terms of an increase in illegal fishing um, as a result of the depletion of fish stocks further afield. And we're already seeing a little evidence of that, um, but I think that's going to be a much more major problem in the years ahead. It's going, there's going to therefore be a need for us to, I would suggest, to step up our, our game in terms of the monitoring we do. They've got a significant manning problem. That, that is a, 
uh, a significant constraint and a concern. If, if I'm right in, in suggesting that there's going to be an increase in that sort of activity, we or Defence may need to confront the need to enhance its capability, but it's also going to have to deal with the question of being able to man an enhanced capability. While the Navy might have suffered from a shortfall in personnel, most of the 4,500 members of the Army's regular force have been home for over a year now. Soldiers recently helped with the clean-up on the West Coast after April's storms, and there's no shortage of training exercises. But Mr Sinclair says that with only a handful of troops now overseas, New Zealand's peacekeeping record could come in for scrutiny as the government seeks to gain a United Nations Security Council seat. I think... Frankly, it's a bit disappointing that uh, our effort there has tapered right off. Uh, our, our commitments to the United Nations um, right now, I think, it's rank us about 91st or 92nd. I don't think that's a good look as we push our campaign for the Security Council forward. We have argued in the past about our contributions to, to peacekeeping in the previous campaign back in the early 90s. And of course, once we, we became a member, we actually that's how we ended up in Bosnia, uh, because we felt as a member of the Security Council, New Zealand needed to, if it was going to urge other countries to contribute, needed to put its hand up. So I, I would suggest if we do succeed in winning a Security Council seat for fifteen sixteen, there will be almost an obligation for us to lift our game in peacekeeping. Order! Order! This is a point of order. Honourable Phil Goff. Mr. Speaker, Mr. Speaker, since the Minister says what I said was incorrect, I seek leave to, quote, to, to table the quote that I quoted accurately to the House about not being able to meet all expected targets. What, what is the source? Uh, the, source the source is the, the Minister's quote. very own annual defence report. No, the Labour Party's defence spokesperson, Phil Goff, on the warpath in Parliament. Like Paul Sinclair, he says he would have expected the government to make a greater effort to get involved in UN peacekeeping missions as the Security Council elections loom. In fact, Mr Goff says it could and should be something the Defence Force specialises in. I mean, I could envisage New Zealand performing the same role in our part of the world that, for example, Norway and Finland perform in other areas of the world. We're seen as an independent country. Uh, our uh, integrity is trusted by other countries. New Zealand could play a far greater role in terms of peace and stability, both in the southwest Pacific, but maybe also the broader Asia-Pacific region, where our foreign policy and our defence policy and our policing capabilities all work together so that New Zealand can help prevent and resolve conflicts with our peacekeeping and our police forces as a critical part of that. I think New Zealand can play more of a role of that nature in the future and our defence policy can be built around that. Campaigner Kate Dews imagines something similar. She spent more than 30 years driving the peace effort, culminating in a three-year stint on the United Nations Advisory Board on Disarmament until last year. She says keep the Defence Force, but don't limit its work just to trained-up armed forces. I also think we should be putting resources into training our, not necessarily defence people, but others to be mediators in the region. And in fact, internationally, a bit like Norway does as well, where they offer um, trained mediators into conflict situations. And I think for us in the Pacific, it would be really, really important for us to have something like a group of uh, eldest statesmen and women from the Māori, Polynesian, Melanesian and Pākehā cultural communities 
who would be valuable as mediators in any regional conflict. There were retired judges in Komatua and Kuia who could be brought in who would be respected and also trained in mediation in terms of being culturally understanding to the people in our region, and I think that's something we could look to in the future. Dr Jews says it's not even a new idea in the South Pacific. Something similar happened when New Zealand went to Bougainville in the 1990s. When they said, don't bring weapons in, they responded by bringing guitars and food and uh, also organising for them to have peace talks on a neutral um, frigate, actually. It was a New Zealand frigate. And then back down here in Canterbury when they went out to Burnham and had a Marae-style meeting. And I think that was really important. I think that set a really important trend around the Pacific that um, these discussions can take place. They take a long time for peacekeeping uh, to happen and conflict resolution to happen, but it was a very good model. She says in conjunction with that kind of wider peace brokering role, it might also be time for New Zealand to step back from some of its formal defence agreements. I think the time is now that we've got to look forward to um, getting rid of um, the UK-USA agreement, the Five Power Defence Agreement, and actually you know, just cutting our cloth in terms of what money we've got and building up trading relationships and good relationships with people in the region and putting funding into disarmament. But if New Zealand isn't taking its cues from larger allies, what should the country's security strategy be based on? Hey, how are you? The Green Party's defence spokesperson, Kennedy Graham, says his former employer, the United Nations, could hold the answer. With great respect to the United States, instead of being sucked towards Washington to be deputy, deputy sheriff to a US-led coalition, we would orientate our hardware for UN purposes exclusively and it would only be exclusively used in the event of an authorisation from the UN Security Council, other than, of course, the inherent right of self-defence. Kate Jews and Kennedy Graham's plans for the military may be a change from current thinking, but they wouldn't be a total departure from parts of what the Defence Force already does. But one man has a much bolder plan. Professor Kevin Clements, delivering his inaugural lecture at Otago University in 2009. He's the director of the university's Centre for Peace and Conflict Studies and says New Zealand could take a much more radical approach to defence and security if it chose to. We can persist with a, a defence force that's more or less the same size as it is, you know, focused on those closer-to-home types of objectives um, and, and, and make more of a pitch on the peacekeeping humanitarian front. But equally, I think that we're in such a privileged strategic position um, that we could really be bold and uh, be the first uh, OECD country to really begin thinking about, you know, what would it mean for New Zealand to uh, have a police force instead of the military um, to perform those functions. Professor Clements says New Zealand wouldn't be the first country to venture down the path of demilitarisation. Costa Rica, for example, got rid of its entire military in 1948 and replaced it with an armed police force. Um, we could guarantee our internal security by doing exactly the same without any kind of negative consequences internationally. In fact, we would probably find that our international reputation would rise if we got rid of our, our defence force and replaced it with a, you know, an internal police force with external capability. Are you able to talk me through what they've done there and how they've managed to 
maintain secure borders. Well, they got rid of their you know, Army, Navy and Air Force, essentially, and then they developed components of that in their, in their police. So you know, they moved from uh, you know, a military model to a policing model. Um, and so the, um, the police force there uh, you know, assumes responsibility for external maritime protection and border protection and so forth. Um, and it has, uh, you know, in a sense, some sort of militarized capacity, but at a very low level. So everybody knows in Latin America that Costa Rica has no capacity to kind of threaten the borders of others. Its um, lack of a military is honored and respected. Um, it enabled Oscar Arias to kind of get the Nobel Prize. It enabled uh, Costa Rica to play a critical brokering role in uh, Latin America. Um, you know, so there are advantages to countries um, becoming relatively unoffensive. I mean, we can be asked, we will, we can, and would be asked to do different things than we're asked to do now. The Costa Rica of the South Pacific? It seems an unlikely prospect, perhaps, but the armed forces have already downsized over the years. The Air Force's combat wing was disbanded under Helen Clark's Labour government, and the current government has no intention of reviving it. This government also began transforming some military jobs into civilian ones in 2011, although that was halted after widespread criticism of how it was handled, including a damning Auditor General's report. That project was a consequence of the Defence White Paper, which was released in 2010. In today's programme, the government announces the biggest changes to the Defence Force in more than a decade. As Secretary of Defence between 2006 and 2012, John McKinnon led the entire process that resulted in the White Paper. The document didn't recommend the wholesale changes to the military of the kind that Kevin Clements suggests. But Mr McKinnon, who's recently been appointed as New Zealand's ambassador to China, says its authors did consider the fundamental purpose of retaining a defence force. This is particularly... Um interesting in the New Zealand environment because in many ways a lot of what the Defence Force does is what you would loosely call civilian tasks. So when the Christchurch earthquake occurred, you know, the Defence Force goes in and, and assists there. When there's some other natural disaster, whether in this country or in the Pacific, you would expect the Defence Force to be at the forefront of assistance. And those are very important and very significant tasks, but in, in, a, in a narrow sense they're not military tasks. And you might well say, well, you know, why don't you either have a specially dedicated, um, you know, force which does those sort of things, or, you know, alternatively, you, you alter the basis of the defence force. In the end, it was not to be. The decision that we came to was that you do need a defence force, and you need a defence force because uh, fundamentally we're still living in a world of states. We're still living in a world in which, from time to time, you have to exercise uh, military power. And without that, you as a country cannot make that contribution. You cannot defend yourself and you cannot contribute to collective security if you don't have those assets. So you make a decision that, yes, you do need a defence force. It needs to be a military force. And what you then have, and this is, in effect, what we have in New Zealand, is the only organisation which is a disciplined force which has integrated sets of assets and which can respond very quickly to situations. So having got that, it then makes sense, and there's statutory provision for this, for it to be used for civil purposes. The Minister of Defence, Jonathan Coleman, agrees that a huge proportion of the Defence Force's work isn't strictly military. In fact, he says a full 30% of its time is spent on humanitarian and disaster relief tasks. But for him, the efficiency argument wins. 
There's a whole lot of tasks um, that only our military people can undertake. There's also security aspects around some of those taskings too. So, you know, our uh, P3 Orions, I mean, they are used right across the government for a, a, a range of tasks. Search and rescue is one of those, and it's a very important task. But uh, it wouldn't make sense to try and split that task out uh, to some sort of civilian division within the NZDF. You'd be fundamentally changing the structure of the NZDF without improving uh, the delivery of those tasks. Dr Coleman says instead the Defence Force is putting its efforts into getting better at doing what it does already. Part of that is the development of a joint amphibious task force that can start to operate from next year. The concept of a joint amphibious task force is the use of uh, the Navy to deploy troops into a South Pacific type theatre supported by uh, helicopters and strategic airlifts, so you know, large planes that are able to deliver um, supporting equipment that uh, such a task force might need. And it's a concept of having the three services all working together. The task force will be combat trained, but it's most likely its work will still be disaster relief and humanitarian deployments. Dr Coleman says whatever future missions New Zealand commits to, whether it's combat or peacekeeping, it has to be for the right reasons. He scorns any suggestion that peacekeeping should have been a focus heading into the Security Council elections. Look, we're not going to be politically expedient and undertake missions which we're not well suited for just because uh, there might be a political payoff to it. So, look, we definitely have a long history of playing our part and we're actively playing our part now. But we have to make sure that when we send people on peacekeeping duties that we can properly support them, that we can keep them safe. And it seems to make sense that we would choose missions that might be closer to home, maybe the Asia-Pacific region, and certainly align with our wider interests. But Dr Coleman doesn't discount the possibility of peacekeeping further afield or even another military mission such as Afghanistan. Throughout its history, New Zealand's defence heritage has been marked by deployments far from the South Pacific. These are the Gallipoli memorials. This is the um, Chinook Bear uh, Memorial. And I like this because this is the highest place that uh, the Allied forces got to. So I'm uh, Lieutenant General Rhys Jones, uh, former Chief of Defence Force of the Defence Force. I'm now retired and doing, well retired from the military, and doing a project for culture and heritage. Rhys Jones' job now is to think about the history of the Defence Force, but he says some things will remain the same in the future. And all our memorials are the words, yeah, they came from the uttermost ends of the earth, and that drives us today to say, you know, these are, we were trying to be good international citizens and responsible, and even today we have soldiers on the uttermost ends of the earth. The Security Council elections will be held in October, and it's expected they'll put New Zealand's defence and diplomatic record under scrutiny in the UN General Assembly. A new defence white paper is also due next year if National is re-elected, which would spell out in greater detail the government's future plans for the Defence Force. I'm Kate Newton, and that's Insight for this week. If you'd like to contact us, you can send an email to insight at radionz.co.nz or send us a tweet at rnz underscore insight. I wrote and presented that programme. It was produced by Philippa Tolley with technical production by Jeremy Veal.